Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, it's Grace. Two weeks ago, I had the distinct honor of moderating a panel at the Texas Tribune Festival. I was joined by State Representative Gina Inojosa and Chairman of the State Board of Education, Kevin Ellis. Since Teaching Texas wrapped up last fall, the state has been embroiled in a debate over school vouchers, climate change education, and district takeovers. We got into all of that. But flying slightly under the radar, though equally consequential, is House Bill 1605, also known as the Amplify Bill, which radically alters how education materials are approved in the state. So together, we dove into how that bill empowers the State Board of Education, right when more radical members of the board are back in the headlines. We discussed money in education politics, the growing influence of external vendors, whether recent actions by the Texas Education Agency are signs of government overreach, or if the local independence of school districts remains intact, and what this bill means for teachers. Many Texas educators joined us in the audience and asked great questions. Towards the end, I asked both Representative Inohosa and Mr. Ellis what they imagine for the future of Texas public education. So with that, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, everyone. I am thrilled to welcome you on behalf of Texas Tribune to the annual Texas Tribune Festival. I'm Grace Lynch. I'm a senior producer with Wonder Media Network, and I'm the creator and host of the podcast Teaching Texas. Um, And I want to thank you all so much for joining us for this live recording. Now, today, we are looking at some of the major changes in Texas education that have happened since Teaching Texas wrapped last November. Last November. (laughs) Our discussion will last approximately 45 minutes, and then we should have time for questions and answers. So I would love for you to help me in welcoming our esteemed panelists. Uh, Representing the fine city of Austin, we have with us Gina Inojosa. Representative Inojosa. Representative Inojosa was first elected to the Texas State House in 2016 and sits on the Public Education Committee. Prior to joining the state legislature, she also served on the Austin ISD School Board. Thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. And we have with us Kevin Ellis. Kevin was elected to the State Board of of Education in 2016 and has served as the chair of the board since 2019. Prior to joining the board, Kevin also served on the Lufkin ISD School Board. Thank you for being here, Kevin. Since Teaching Texas wrapped last fall, education has far from faded from the news in Texas. One of the most substantive changes has been made made during the last legislative session was House Bill 1605. It is a multifaceted bill that reforms how textbooks and educational materials are assessed, and the changes have implications for teachers, parents, and it prompts some bigger questions about where public education in the state is headed. Now, rather than monologue about the minutia of this bill to all of you, I'm going to turn this over to our experts. Representative Inoosa and Mr. Ellis, I would love to hear from both of you, in brief, what you believe the pros and cons of this bill are. 
You do not need to worry about expressing your opinion in this moment. We will have plenty of time for that. I just want to set the table for this conversation by understanding the prevailing narratives that have come out of passing this legislation. Representative Hinojosa, would you like to start us off? I'm happy to start us off. I want to thank everybody for being here um, for an important topic that maybe is not as uh, um, on its face as exciting as um, some others might be, but it's so important and um, appreciate having this opportunity. So I really, really tried to think about what are the positives of this bill. I tried, Grace. Thank you for trying. (laughs) And in theory, the 40 extra dollars that would be provided per student for instructional materials would be a good thing. Unfortunately, it is tied to having to use certain instructional materials that are really decided by the state. So in that way, it is somewhat a tool of coercion. So I'll stop there for now. A rousing list. <laughs> okay, great. We'll get to that. Mr. Ellis, would you like to round out perhaps some of the pros of this bill? Sure. We can play good cop, we can play good cop bad cop as far as all that goes. Well, again, thank you for having me also. I, you've uh, spoken a lot on the past of the State Board of Education, so I'm thankful to give the current state of, of where we're at now. I, I do think there are some benefits to this. Number one is that we will, when I say we, I mean the, the State Board of Education, the elected State Board of Education will have more authority over the review. There will be increased funding. Um, we'll actually be able to look at what truly is quality and what's suitable for our grade levels. Um, there's open education resources that are dictated, that are uh, written by the state of Texas. The elected state board will now have uh, control over that. Representative Hinojosa mentioned the money. There's there's always been about a billion dollars that's been appropriated for textbooks over the year. That will remain, no strings attached. But this extra funding, I think, is going to be important in this bill, too. Some of the other, I think, important things are the authority that we're given in this. Currently, we can only reject a textbook if it doesn't cover just 50% of the TEKS. We have the ability to increase that to a greater number. It prohibits uh, tools such as three queuing, which is kind of guessing how to read, and has other things where teachers have more control over their planning period. I will give a few of my concerns, whether they're cons or, or whatever, Thank is you. that I think to Representative Hinojosa's point, we are starting to blur the line a bit of what is a state-mandated curriculum. I don't believe this bill does that, but I think we need to be careful as we approach that um, that aspect. And Representative Hinojosa, would you like to add some of the cons you see in the bill? Absolutely. Generally, my problem with this bill it's, is it shifts power from teachers, from local school districts, to our TEA commissioner, Texas Education Agency commissioner. Yes, there is SBOE approval involved in the process of selection of these textbooks. However, there is a reason why this bill, 1605, included 74 full-time employees for the Texas Education Agency. And how many employees do you have at the SBOE? We have zero. Right. So it's a matter of capacity. Ultimately, what will happen, in my opinion, is that TEA will say this is how it should be. This is not just the content of the instructional materials, but this is what quality looks like. 
and SBOE will not have the bandwidth to um, do much to second guess that decision making by what is now going to be a big section or big of this already large agency. Fabulous. Okay. I feel personally much clearer on what the positives and negatives are that at least are the prevailing narratives but coming out of this. But I could go on. I'm <laughs> so sure that you could. And we will get there. But first, I want to jump back a little bit, um, Mr. Ellis, to something you said essentially about giving the uh, State Board of Education a bit more tools to make these assessments and decisions. Two of the changes that stuck out to me in 1605 was that the State Board of Education doesn't need to stick to this 50% adherence to the TEKS standard for assessing textbooks and that the review cycle for subjects no longer has to be on this very prescriptive schedule that it's been on. I'd love to know from your perspective why those two changes are beneficial to the state board. Yeah, and I think whenever we, we the state, does legislation, we, we ask ourselves, what, what problem are we trying to solve here? And I think I would say that by there was a confusing system that we have as a dual system. The State Board of Education had a textbook adoption process, and the Texas Education Agency had the Texas Resource Review. So part of our adoption process was we could only reject a textbook for one of four reasons. If it had factual errors, to your point of your question, didn't cover 50% of the TEKS, had poor binding, and wasn't suitable for grade level. But I think what districts assumed was that if we put our good housekeeping stamp of approval on a textbook, we were telling them that it was quality. And really, we were telling them, well, it covered at least half the material. We couldn't find an error, and the book didn't fall apart. You know, that's essentially what we were telling them. So I think the benefit of what we're doing now is a true quality review. To the would work on the evergreen process, we would only in the past, we would do what are called proclamations, another Texas-specific term. That means after we revised the Texas Essential Knowledge and Skills, we would call for publishers to develop textbooks. And that happened about for each subject once every 10 years. So if you wrote a textbook and you brought it to us and it didn't pass, we'd have to say, sorry, we'll try again in 10 years and we'll see you back. Now textbooks can be submitted every year. So it does two things. Number one, it allows a new product to get to market quicker if it's a quality product. And then number two, it also, if you miss the mark on your book, we can say, go back and make it better and come back next year instead of waiting 10 years. So that's the evergreen process you're asking about. A question I have about that is that since judging materials and and approving textbooks has become an at least recently, and it also was in the past, a rather contentious and or politicized experience. Wouldn't opening that up so that every single year something could be raised or something could be combated during the State Board of Education meetings, doesn't that create just an open door for endless complaints? I talk about our job being controversial before we even show up for work. You know, you could have the State Board of, of, of Gandhi and Mother Teresa and 13 other like people, and our job is still controversial. So it, it is controversial before we get there. Are you but, Gandhi <coughs> or Mother Teresa in that analogy? Neither. <laughs> My wife's here. She'll tell you neither. <laughs> so <clears throat> we have a job to do. And so I think what we're trying to do is provide the best resources for our districts and for our teachers. And if that creates more work for us and we can help sort through that, I think that's a good thing. Something else you mentioned is that this allows you to reflect on quality of the materials, which 
brought me back to prior to 2011 when the State Board of Education did have a a content considerations uh, part of its job where it could say, like, textbooks can't include these things, not just that it had to meet the TEKS standards, but that was removed in 2011 with Senate Bill 6. So I'm wondering if you can explain to me why that power was originally removed from the state board and if you do see what has changed in 1605 as a way back to that. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. And you know, your podcast goes back to the 1950s. And, and because past is prologue, let me go back about 15 years and talk about what you're asking right there. In 2011, the legislature passed uh, Senate Bill 6, which is the last major reform of how we did our textbooks. So leading up to 2011... You had a Texas State Board of Education that was making headlines that really reflected negatively, not only on the board, but on the, on the state of Texas. You had two previous chairs. The two chairs at that time were appointed but weren't even confirmed by the, the Senate. And I think it's naive to think that you can bring elected officials to Austin and not be it political, but it was really over the top. They made a movie about it called The Revisionaries. It's and great. so it's pretty interesting. So I the legislators sharply curtailed the authority of the state board at that time, specifically on charters in what you're asking about, which was Senate Bill 6. After that time, I think the, the there was a shift of authority from the state board to the TEA, but the state board became refocused. You had chairs Donna Bohorich and Barbara Cargill, and I've tried to follow their lead of really focusing on the important work that we did. One of the stories that I tell that really emphasizes that that shift was there was a senator that in 2017 carried the bill in the Senate to give us our first bit of authority back to the state board. That same senator two sessions earlier had carried a bill to abolish the State Board of Education. So I think that's a culmination of the restoration of the respect that the State Board has worked hard to, to, to earn back. But I think that's a little bit of the story of the balance of practically how we're now reviewing textbook in the context of the political system. Well, a question I have as a follow-up to that is that I would agree that the State Board has gained back a lot of the prestige that it once had or respect. And I know that you have been a big part of that. I didn't speak to a single person in this podcast who didn't have any, a positive thing to say about you and how you have handled running the state board with decorum and civility and professionalism. Thank you. And yeah. presently, there are some board members who are back in the headlines for pushing um, or endorsing more extreme ideas that one could say is not a far cry from how it was in 2010 when the revisionaries was made. And so I wonder how you feel about the state board being handed back so much more power right when the board is also having a more radical shift in its politics. You you have pendulums that swing back and forth. So one option is that we're on a pendulum that we've swung to the good side. And to your point, we can go right back to that. But to much... Authority is given, much is respected also. So I think that's incumbent on colleagues, my colleagues on the state board, to respect the authority that's been given by the legislature, to respect that work, and to do the right thing. Um, I talked a little bit about the authority that was taken away in 2011. If you go back into the 80s, the legislature took away entirely the elected state board and made it appointed. So there's a history of this legislature not not putting up with a state board that is doing things for all the wrong reasons. And like I said, reflecting negatively on the state. So we say we get the government we deserve, right? So that's up to us to make sure that we elect the right people that are focused on the right thing and not on the extremes of the 
the discussion otherwise. Representative Hinojosa, I would like to get your perspective on this as well. I, I wonder if from where you're sitting, if we have any reason to expect the state board to not become more politically extreme in the upcoming years. I'll say that education politics is a fascinating thing because at least in Texas, it still has overlap in partisanship. Some of my best allies in the work that I do are MAGA Republicans and mostly their mothers, right? And because as mothers, we understand that, and and let me back up and say, there is no more partisan than myself. I am chair of the House Democratic Campaign Committee and I don't shy away from my partisanship. Education is a different story. And for education, I do what I can to preserve that bipartisanship. And so shifts that we are seeing at the SBOE are opposed not just by progressives, but also opposed by many conservatives who don't appreciate that kind of politics being injected into our schools. This is why I love the work in this space, because it is still this rare policy area where we can transcend Fox News sound bites, right, and work in um, real collaborative ways to do what's best for kids. I would love to focus now a bit more on the outside education resources, which is a big part of this bill. I think I would love to first, um, Representative Inosa, have you explain how those materials differ from textbooks. If you're just an outside observer like myself, I don't know if I would think of these as a separate entity, separate from the textbook adoption process. So this is exactly what it says it is. It is an open education resource found online that schools will be able to access. There is a a printing stipend that is associated with it that is given if you are to print materials from OER. Um, And it is a centralized database of curriculum that that is currently being established for all of the um, major content areas in the state of Texas. And who is compiling that? The TEA is compiling that. The TEA is contracting to make that happen. Let me back up when we talk about 1605 to say it's hard for me to remember what is the number of this bill because all legislative session, we called it the Amplify Bill. Amplify is a for-profit corporation who was the vendor, who was the biggest proponent and lobby for the passage of House Bill 1605. Amplify received contracts during COVID when our schools were scrambling to have access or to continue to teach in varying trying circumstances when we couldn't be in person. And so these online curriculum, um, this online curriculum was established for this person for this purpose. Mm. And now it's being um, taken, except we don't know how much it was even used. We have no metrics of how this was used and and whether or not it was something that was valued by our schools. Yet here we are with a bill that spends about 500 million taxpayer dollars that I believe should be going to the classroom 
we are creating now this state-created curriculum OER found online and this approval process, 74 FTEs, full-time employees. It is, I suspect, also as we are talking about vouchers in the state of Texas and the governor has vowed to bring us back for a special session on vouchers in early October, I suspect this is related in this way. The OER content will be available to everyone, private schools, mm. anyone who wants to access it. So now what we have created is this free curriculum for private schools to use in case vouchers pass. So at the same time that the Permanent School Fund is rocking and making record money for the state of Texas is the time that we now have vendors who are pushing curriculum and access to money for instructional materials in our classroom. I sense a sort of concern or wariness about these vendors, and I have a question as to why. How are they to you different than the independent companies that make textbooks and publish textbooks? This was my first time on the Public Education Committee. This is my fourth term in the Texas House, so almost eight years in the Texas House. I've asked every time to be on the Public Education Committee, but this was the first time the speaker appointed me to it. And I was astounded by how many bills we hear that are vendor bills. I understand there are lobbyists and there is money in politics. I get it. It's just a different kind of concern when it comes to education and especially when we know that our teachers make on average $7,000 below the national average. We know that our schools are at in the bottom, I think, three states. Others say bottom seven states when it comes to per student funding. We know we need another $40 billion just to be average when it comes to funding in the state of Texas. So it is especially distasteful to me when we have this expansion of vendor contracts in the state of Texas when we are in desperate need of money in the classroom for our teachers and for our students. Okay. A question about these um, resources that I want to ask you, Mr. Ellis, is that um, Texas AFT, who I believe uh, sponsored that video that we had open our panel, um, in reflecting on the bill, said that materials procured or developed by TEA would go through the review process, and TEA, not the elected SBOE, would be the sole authority to determine the quality of instructional materials as well as TEKS coverage. And then when we were in the green room just a few minutes ago when I was desperately trying them not to do the panel before we got a chance to be out here, but I failed in that, uh, you mentioned that this allows you to essentially the SBOE to work with both hands to be able to look at textbooks and then also to look at these outside the education materials. However, this assessment leads me to believe that the SBOE doesn't actually have that much involvement with these educational materials, and I'm hoping you can reconcile these for yeah, me. So let me talk about a couple points there. So TA, I think, maybe has around 900 or so employees. I'm not sure what the exact number is. I said we have zero employees. There are two of the TA employees that are dedicated to the State Board of Education, but Woo. we don't have um, <laughs> the resources that they have. What this bill does, and I think I heard it loud and clear from the legislature, is told the State Board and the, the TEA to work together to make sure you do this right. 
before where there's open education resources, and let me speak about that for a little bit. I was on the School of Finance Commission in 2018, and we taught that's kind of when I first started understanding where OER was coming from. And the way it was portrayed back then was that we could go to Rice University and get their biology department to write a biology textbook for the state of Texas. Texas would buy it for, say, a million dollars and give it to all the schools for free and kind of a, a great process. What has become OER has significantly changed to where the TEA is actually developing curriculum. Before 1605, we had no authority over that. With 1605, there is still going to be OER, but it has to be approved by the State Board of Education under 1605. We don't have, again, there's only 15 of us, we don't have the resources to review and do the quality review of all this. So the agency will still be doing that. The agency will develop the process of how that works, but that process has to be approved by the State Board of Education. The agency will be developing the rubric on how that will be evaluated, but the State Board of Education will be approving that rubric. So we do kind of have, the commissioner probably wouldn't like me to say this, but I'll look at him as the, uh, we're, we're the brains behind it, he's the brawn behind it. So. I like that. Okay. Um, something else I wanted to ask about how this bill is structured is that it does give financial incentive for districts to select textbook materials and educational resource materials that are approved by the state board in a way that up until now, it is just, to your point, you said, like, we put our stamp of approval on it, but there wasn't any additional incentive to select those. It was all up to the district localities. Both of you have served on school boards, which would be the people who are making the decisions in these instances. I'm wondering if these financial incentives, given your past experience, would be a gift because school boards, to your point, are under or schools are underfunded and need to save where they can, or is this an overreach and kind of forcing the hand of localities? Representative. It could be a lifeline, given how desperate our schools are for money and we have money in the state of Texas, that $40 billion I mentioned that we would need to invest in education just to be at the national average, we actually have it sitting in the treasury, right? So it is a deliberate decision to not fully fund our schools, yet pull money and dangle money as, um, as a carrot to for school districts to give away their power and give away their teachers' power. In the presentation that was made to the SBOE, SBOE on 1605, there was even talk about um, pacing of sequence of context. So it's not just about the content, but how we teach the content that will be expected to meet the TEA standards, the commissioner's standards when adopting this material. It's it's a cookie-cutter version of teaching that is not effective. When you talk to teachers, they will tell you that curriculum and the way they teach is constantly shifting um, as they see what the needs in the classroom are, from pace to how it's delivered. They are the professionals. They know they should decide. There is a, a, a phrase that I heard a teacher say recently, uh, no lesson plan survives first contact with students. And that is a play on no battle plan survives first contact with, uh, with um, uh, the enemy. But 
But I respect that, and I understand that as a parent. you got to see where your kids are and shift and adjust and deliver in a way that is most effective and that reaches them. And when we have this cookie-cutter version of teaching, it, we will have a, um, it will have a detrimental effect, I believe, on teaching and learning. Let me answer that question first by giving a little context of just some nuts and bolts of how it works. That billion dollars will still always be there. No strings attached. Districts can buy whatever they want. You have the incentive or the carrot that's passed along in the, this this forty dollars if they if they choose something off the high quality instruction material. But I look about. I think your question goes to how we is education being standardized. And you mentioned Representative Oates and I both served on our local school boards. Um, Austin ISD cannot be any different than Lufkin ISD. The challenges we have in Lufkin are very different than the challenges that, that the other district faces. Her and I are probably very different. She's a Hispanic female, Democrat, from an urban area. I'm a white male Republican from a small town in East Texas. But I think she would agree with me that some of the, the, the benefits you have on serving on a local school board is you see the perspective of the needs of students and of teachers and of administrators and of the community. And I think that served me well and it's probably served her well to have that same understanding. But as much as our challenges are in different demographics, if her and I, she grabbed a student from Austin ISD and I grabbed one from Lufkin and we sat down for lunch, all those demographic statistics go away. We have two children. And I think when you, when you take all that other stuff away and we look at two children, you start to see the strengths of those two children, the potential of those two children, but you also see the needs of those two children. And those needs are the needs they have of the adults in the system. So I think that's where 1605 has to move towards, that just like the people who replaced us on these lo local school boards, people in Lufkin like Scott Skelton and Allison Langston who are serving in my role now, need to make sure that are, they are able to give the resources to the teachers that are still there that taught my children to have the ability to, to teach properly to our students. And I think if 1605 becomes a standardization of education, we've missed the mark. But if it's able to give us the tools, not us, able to give districts and teachers the tools they need, then we've done something good. Given how important you've both made the case for school boards to be. I would love to get your um, perspectives on what's currently happening in Houston ISD, where to my understanding, the elected school board has been largely pushed aside in favor of a state-imposed superintendent and rule. Well, I think it is an injustice what is happening to that community and to those schools. It, though, falls in line with what we're seeing in every aspect of public education coming from the top, from the state, when it comes to public education. And it is a transfer of power from locals, from teachers, to the state, specifically to the commissioner of education. My own school district, Austin ISD, is facing a similar threat as to whether or not to accept a proposed order from the TEA to um, have a monitor in the district as opposed to a conservator. This is a first step. This is the first step that happened in Houston before takeover it is happening in my school district. It is because of some very serious, very real problems with our special education program in Austin ISD. However, 
These are problems that occurred under a prior board, not me, <laughs> but under a prior board, under a prior superintendent, just like what we're seeing, seeing in Houston ISD. Big, terrible problems occurred in Houston ISD, but guess what? Democracy worked. Just like here in Houston, voters decided to put new people in charge and turn things around. Houston was on that track. Austin is very much on that track, but there is not credibility given to voters deciding to fix things and being on the track of fixing things. And instead, what we have is state takeover of the largest school district in the state of Texas, and we see daily problems with what's occurring there. We see teachers leaving. We see parents up in arms. Last night I was at an event. I had a mother who is an advocate for her child in special education. There's no stronger advocates than mothers of kids in special education. Came to me and asked, how do I have input into what's happening in my child's education if this is taken over by the state? And these are good questions. We don't know the answers to these questions, right? So this is the fundamental problem with 1605, with what we're seeing in the Houston takeover, even what we're seeing when it comes to school safety, which is a big issue, probably polled as the top issue for Texas voter this voters this last legislative session. Rather than giving the school districts money to decide how to keep our kids in schools safe, we gave the money to TEA, shifting of power on every front in public education to the state, to the commissioner, to Austin over local school districts. Mr. Ellis, do you have anything to add to that? Well, in our little green room pre-conversation, I brought up the fact that I've gotten to meet with other uh, uh, state board of education members from across the country. And it's very interesting how different states do it differently. We focus primarily on curriculum, on instruction material, graduation requirements. We have no control over what happened at Houston ISD. Talked to a colleague of mine in Arkansas, and that's essentially all they do. They have very little control over curriculum, but they dealt with a state takeover of Little Rock ISD for years and years. So it's very different. We, we have no control over that. I would say that what's, in, as Representative Hosa mentioned, Houston ISD had some significant challenges and some significant problems. It's one, I think, of the first district that's been taken over for academic reasons as opposed to historically. There's been a majority of districts have been taken over financial. So I, ju I just hope it all works well for them. I want to circle back to our conversation about teachers briefly because I, um, we, we glossed over that and it's a very, a very important part of this. Um, you mentioned that you know teachers have in some instances, or even in the majority of instances, spoken out against this bill. Uh, there were also teachers that testified in favor of it who spoke to the idea that having these resources would allow them to focus on how to teach and not just scrambling to figure out what to teach, which to me seemed to speak to the art of teaching, which is to cater the curriculum that you have to your students and make sure that it impacts them the most directly. I'm wondering if you think that there's any merit to having more clear-cut expectations or a clear hand in deciding what materials should be in classrooms that actually would lead to more of an ability for teachers to have creativity and reign over their classrooms without having to focus on a bunch of logistics that shouldn't have been their job to begin with. 
Right. And we did hear 1605 being sold as something to help teachers. Absolutely. We, we had every teacher's group oppose 1605. I don't remember any teachers speaking in favor of it. I do remember a superintendent, um, Superintendent Ott, speaking in favor of it. But with the caveat that it would only work if we got our full 50% of our instructional materials allotment, which we did not get for our schools. We do have a problem with too many experienced teachers leaving the profession. That problem should be addressed. It's not addressed. No teacher pay raise, no more money for schools. So we have lots of new teachers. And it is true that we have lots of new teachers without the experience um, that is required to be most effective as a teacher. This may help them, actually. But there are better ways to help them. And mentorship programs with other teachers is one way, making sure that we do what we can to um, encourage certifi having certified teachers. We have these things in the state of Texas called districts of innovation, right? We do all sorts of lessening of standards in the name of innovation, right? And so what we should do is encourage the profession, encourage certification of teachers, um, encourage programs that are helping teachers get that certification and compensating teachers so they stay and don't leave for other more lucrative professions when there is no more profession in the state of Texas in this country than that of an educator. Yeah, and I would just add too that you know with, with teachers and the way this bill is written and the way it's being implemented, there is still complete local control. Prior to 1605, a district can purchase instruction material that was approved by the State Board of Education. They can buy material that wasn't reviewed by the State Board of Education, and they can buy material that is actually rejected by the State Board of Education. After 1605, it's the exact same thing. With that $1 billion that's still there, they can, same thing, buy material that was approved, rejected, or, or not. Um, I think one of the, the narratives that I want to point out when we talk about how the bill was brought forward was there is a narrative that educators didn't have quality instruction material, and they had to go to Google and Pinterest to find lesson plans. That was a narrative that was put out there. So what I want to point out is it's not correct to feel that anything that comes out after 1605 is going to be high quality, and therefore anything that came out prior to 1605 was poor quality. There was very strong, very good instruction material that teachers had the ability to access and will continue to have the ability <clears throat> to access. So the point is, is that hopefully we're improving on that. We're given additional funding to help accentuate that, but I don't want the narrative to be out there that it was only bad before and now that it's all gonna be good. I wanna add a, an important perspective to this overall conversation, and that is that it, there is no state in the nation with more strict accountability standards than the state of Texas. We hold our school districts, our teachers, to the highest, almost arguably impossible standards to deliver and produce based on star test results, our, our, um, the tests we use here in, in Texas. We very much, and we punish school districts, right, that don't meet the mark. And so why are we also controlling the inputs we're very concerned with the outputs, but we're also telling school districts, this is how you need to teach. Well, then it's not fair. Like, do one or the other, right? Either school districts and teachers are going to be responsible for achieving these measures, these 
meeting these strict accountability standards, um, or the state is. Really, I think at this point, it is our state that these scores are reflective on. The commissioner has taken more and more power, more and more authority from teachers, from classrooms, from school districts. So I don't even know that it's fair anymore to judge school districts on the um, A through F letter grade that they receive. And I can't even go down. That's a whole nother conversation. But but, but really, if we are going to hold our school districts to such high standards, well, then let them figure out how to get there. You're going to get them on that end. They have every incentive to do right by their kids. They already, they're teachers. It's not like they go into this profession for the money, right? They already go in because they love kids. They love teaching. Um, it is a calling. And so let's let them be the professionals they are and do their job. And then we evaluate them at the end. Well, something I think that you're speaking to and it's something that I saw in charting the the history of Texas's education movement, I think you could call it, um, in teaching Texas was how much the perspective on teachers shifted from the you know uh, education advocates in the 1950s to more of a modern day. In the 1950s, Mel and Norma Gabler, for you know all their faults, were just absolutely convinced that teachers were the best people in the world and they just needed to make sure that the right materials were in their hands, but there was never a negative thing said about a teacher back then. And I see now that that narrative has largely shifted and has been shifting for a long time now and that teachers have become the subject of a lot of the ire and frustrations around education. And it's interesting to see how when a we can all agree that teachers are you know, underpaid and under-resourced and overworked and then the solution proposed is to hand the materials that actually might take away some of their agency rather than empowering them to do more. It, I think, is a really interesting thing to note, um, and I don't think is unique to Texas at all. Um, but it is an interesting evolution, I would say, of this issue. And that brings me to thinking about how the Texas education system is evolving more broadly. You brought up vouchers earlier, and that is certainly a whole other panel. But it is an absolute priority for the governor. He's made that abundantly clear. And there seems to be a very strong push from his office to what looks like to me, and this is what I'm interested to hear from both of you, to... um, to separate, to splinter the Texas education system into private options, into more charters, into uh, the public system that exists. There's this, to me, that's you know a, a splintering effect of trying to push kids into these different options, school choice. Meanwhile, there is this consolidation of power within TEA that 1605 is a part of, but that has also been going on for a while. And to me, that seems contradictory, that there would be this consolidation of like state run and influenced education and a stratification of the education system within the state. So I'm wondering if you two see this as contradictory or if I'm wrong in seeing it that way. And I would also love to know where you do imagine Texas education is going to look like in 10, 15 years. Are we going to have more cohesion or are we going to be more decentralized? And um, Mr. Ellis, I want to start with you. Well, like I mentioned previously, we ha- we have certain jobs that we do. We do the curriculum standards. We do the instruction material. We do the graduation requirements. The legislature, unlike in some other states, 
our Texas legislature, there's 181 of them over there at the Pink Dome, will have this decision to make. There's lots of nuances with there. I think the, only, the, the, the point I would make is, without delving into this too much that's outside of my lane, is we're often asked a question, are you for or against school choice? There are so many nuances. If school choice happens and we're able to, and, and parents are given more authority to make decisions, all those nuances are very important. She mentioned accountability. We don't lay a mile of asphalt road without someone going in behind them and drilling a hole to make sure that if we paid for four inches of asphalt, we get four inches of asphalt. So I think the, the, the devil's gonna be in the details with that of what the specifics are of that bill, but we get a lot of broad, you're either for or against it. But I'm gonna be really curious to watch the legislature to see what comes out of it this session. One second, Representative, before I get to you. I'm going to push for just a little bit more of a definitive answer, which is that I understand that the State Board of Education and your position as chair may not have any influence on this, but you are also a product of public schools. You're a father. You live in a community. And I'm wondering what you imagine Texas schools will look like, not necessarily what you want them to look like, but what you imagine will it will look like in the future. I would have said that before this past session that there would not have been what is referred to as vouchers or school choice or whatever term you want to use um, would have ever passed the Texas House. I think you would agree with me on that. This session's been different. Um, and it, it ended and we have a special session coming up. So I, I, I don't know. I, I think that if, if someone had the crystal ball and was able to look into that, they'd, they'd be a pretty wise person. Um, but the nation's shifting. That's It's going into this aspect of having parents have more control over where their what their kid's education is. Some of that can be very good, but some of it can also be problematic. And that's where I'm talking about that the nuances of it are going to be critical with what this legislature does. All right. I'll let you get away with that answer. All right. Representative Inosa. <laughs> In the state of Texas, parents have control through elections. That's how we control the majority of what parents want. We decide at the ballot box. When, when it comes to this kind of dichotomy between privatization and more centralized control in our public schools, I don't really see a contradiction because the thread that weaves through both of those things is money for private vendors. And that's what I think it's about. It's about well-connected, politically well-connected friends of the commissioner, friends of the governor, um, who end up getting contracts for with that are being paid by taxpayer dollars. And so that's what I believe is the commonality. Now, where do I see this going in the future? I think Texans have wised up. We all see what's happening in Houston. In fact, I just was speaking to... Um, a colleague of mine from Houston this week, and she said a lot of members are getting in trouble because they voted for the bill that allows for takeover. But they were told that it would mean something different. And now they know. Now we all know better, right? And so I do think that as there is this um, kind of strong arm from the state and the commissioner coming in and trying to gain more control, there is... A more educated populace that understands that they are losing their rights and fighting back. All right. We have a few minutes now for questions if folks want to start lining up. And while while that is happening, Representative Hinojosa, I've got one more question for you, which was, do you imagine a future of Texas education that is more 
stratified or do you imagine something that is more centralized? Well, if you're asking about vouchers in particular, there is not the will in the House for vouchers. We have had multiple votes on this issue this year, prior legislative sessions. It is not the will of the House to pass vouchers. If vouchers become law in the state of Texas, it will be because be because of lack of strategy in the Texas House. It will be because the House lost and Dan Patrick won. Okay. And with that, Miss, you want to start? Hi. So my name is Natalie Brown, and I'm a parent of a second grader in Dallas ISD. And as I think about um, this notion of high-quality instructional materials, I was at a state of public education uh, presentation earlier this week with Commissioner talked about how only 19% of lessons across the state of Texas are on grade level or higher, meaning 81% of lessons taught are below grade level. And so as I think about my second grader, that means one in five lessons that he's getting is more most likely to be below grade level, which is extremely concerning to me as a parent. And so luckily he is in Dallas ISD where they are really committed to this idea of high quality instructional materials um, to where I feel more comfortable as a parent knowing he's getting a quality education. But thinking about this cycle, if it weren't for the cycle of every 10 years, the next time these standards or curriculum would be revisited, he'd be a graduating in his senior year. And so if it's not this notion of moving towards high quality to ensure students are getting a quality education, then what is the better solution? Well, I'll start with saying I never saw data to support that contention by the TEA commissioner. And many of us in the legislature took issue with that statement. So I don't take that as truth. And based on my conversations with multiple districts across the state, I see no truth in, in that. I just want to point out, not so much what you were saying right there, but there's also something similar about the STAR test being written on grade level and, and reports that came out. And to the representative's point, that's very difficult to, to define grade level. There's not, a, there's not a program that you just run it to. There are things like lexile reading, but that just tells you the type of words. You can have very complex, meaningful stories that are written with very simple words that it, it, it's hard to judge that. So I think to her point, it does become difficult to assess what's truly at grade level. I think if you want to know what's at grade level, you ask Texas teachers. You go to third grade teachers and say, is this at a third grade level? And that's how you determine whether it's at grade level. All right. Well, we're here. Good morning. Um, you brought up that one of the components for a textbook to pass the review is that it must not have factual errors. In a political climate where facts are debated and alternative facts are presented as truths, how are you and your colleagues at the State Board of Education ensuring that U.S. and Texas histories are not altered to dismiss our countries and states' dark histories as it relates to slavery, racism, and other prejudices towards minority communities? Yeah, so for a very practical, I'll, I'll kind of speak to the political aspect, but let me answer it just practically. Um, there's this very specific definition of factual errors. It's been around before we've had this controversy that you're, that you're referring to. Um, a typo is not a factual error. That's just a mistake. A factual error is 2 plus 2 equals 5. That's something that, that's wrong. So that's just the, the nuts and bolts of what your question is. But to, to go a little deeper where you're asking about how do we tell the true story of, of slavery and, and, and everything that's happened in our country, and that it goes back to my answer about our job. Our job is State Board of Education members to do the right thing. There's a lot of narratives that are out there. Like, for example, when we talk about teaching Texas history, that we don't want to, we just want to teach about the glory of the Alamo, but not really what was happening about slavery in Texas. But if you go right now 
and go look at the seventh grade social studies standards, there's a very clear story of what happened about slavery in the state of Texas. It's, it's progressed. I, I did an interview with CBS this morning and talked about how standards have progressed from the early 1900s when you had people developing the standards who were their, their fathers and mother, their fathers fought in the Civil War. Those were the people who were deciding what was going to be taught in our classrooms in the early 1900s. And you go into the Civil Rights Movement, and then you go into the 80s, and when the state board kind of became and went from an appointed to elected board. My whole point is that this is a, a work in progress. Um, we had, when I got on the state board, that slavery was the third on the list of three reasons is the cause of the Civil War. We've changed that now to slavery as a central cause. It was a central role. So it's a work in progress that we're telling a complete and honest true story. And I think that gives a little more context to your question. I'd like to follow up with that sure. a little bit because uh, I know right Did now... Did I open a door there? <laughs> a little bit. Um, you, uh, something that has been in front of the state board recently is science standards, specifically climate change education um, for eighth graders. And you have a member of your board who has been in, in-house counsel to Shell Oil for about 20 years. And in in those hearings, he has made some statements about the positive side effects of fossil fuel development. And I'm wondering, how as a board, you plan to move forward with making sure that that information is not only factual, but is high quality when you have someone on the board with such a clear um, conflict of interest? It's a 15-member board. We all listen to what we're going to vote on and, and, and vote from there. So... Interestingly enough, when we develop our standards, we revise our standards. I think it was in 2020 when we did that. Lots of things that we do create controversy. We added in climate change into our standards, received no testimony about it, no state board member pushback on it. It was almost, I, I was essentially astonished. It was sitting right there and it passed into our standards and nobody questioned it. Something surprised me. So we now actually have, talk about this continuum, we now have climate change in our standards that we didn't have prior to 2020. These textbooks that are going to be written on those standards is what's coming up now. Texas derives a lot of its, its economic impact on fossil fuels. My personal point of view is we are moving towards a cleaner type of energy. We can't do that overnight. We're moving that direction. So I think that it's incumbent on our textbook publishers to, to tell an accurate portrayal of where we're at and where we're trying to go. And then to your point, 15 elected members are going to have to make the right decision. Okay. Over here. Hi, my name is Allison. I used to be a teacher in Houston Independent School District. I'm here today to ask, do you foresee an end to uh, the control of the TEA? Is there any way we can make them elected officials instead of appointed by the governor? Because I can tell you things are really bad in Houston from a teacher. I'm no longer with them. I left during the summer. But I have a lot of friends and coworkers and colleagues, and I can tell you that things are not good. And I agree with what you said, ma'am, about um, it's really not fair to give them the curriculum and say you have to teach it and you have to teach it this way and you have to stay on schedule and then say we're going to pay you according to your student outcomes. I think that's very unfair to teachers, and I'd just like to hear you expound more on that. Thank you. There, you, you brought up, I'm going to just kind of answer one part of that. Of I mentioned that the legislature asked the state board and the TA to work together on this, and I do want to credit the legislature, Commissioner Buckley um, specifically, and Chairman, or Chairman Buckley and Chairman Creighton. One of the early 
versions of the bill had that we wouldn't just review instruction material, but that districts and teachers had to use it as prescribed. And that's something I pushed back on. I said, it's one thing to say, here's some examples of some high quality instruction material that may be used, but it's a whole other thing to her point to say, teachers, you have to use it like that. So I'm thankful that did not make it in the bill, but it was something that was originally thought of in the bill. I'll say that that is a concern of mine as well. There still is a provision in the bill that requires, well, that says teachers are protected from liability if they teach the um, state-approved curriculum, quote, with fidelity, right? And, and so I, I think that was just a cynical assertion insertion into the bill that kind of speaks to the way teachers have been vilified lately and scared lately and silenced lately. Teachers should already be protected from liability um, if they are acting within their professional scope, right? But this kind of put that in there almost, I think, to scare teachers into sticking to this curriculum if it is what their school district tries to adopt. I will say about what we do about TEA commissioner and should we have elected commissioners, probably the most popular bill I ever filed was in a fit of anger when I filed a bill to require the TEA commissioner be elected and not appointed. I haven't filed that since because I started to get scared about what that might look like. But, um, <laughs> but yes, he has too much power. And what I think needs to happen is the legislature needs to claim back that power. That's within our control. We have the power to do that. And I think you all, as constituents, should be impressing upon us um, the need to now do that. Okay, I was just given the five minute warning by our lovely stage manager. Uh, was that right? Yes, okay, great. So we're gonna go quickly. So we're gonna be snappy. <laughs> snappy. Hello, my name is Emily Salazar. I just completed my doctoral degree and three of my textbooks, my favorite textbooks, had I not graduated from a private university or on a list to be banned at state colleges here in Texas. Representative Hinojosa, this my question is for you. At the beginning of this session, you thanked us for attending, and you said something to the effect of this topic may not be as exciting or whatever as others. I want to know why. I want to know why. This is scary to me. Uh, I, when I see books about Cesar Chavez and, and about Martin Luther King on lists of books that might be banned, why is this topic not filling the Paramount Theater? Why do you think that is? It's scary. Well, I do think the issue of book bans is a, a topic that lots of people are concerned about and has garnered a lot of attention, and rightfully so, and I voted against that, and now that bill is being held up um, in federal court. So um, I was speaking specifically to instructional materials and the approval process, but it's all related. And in fact, what I think happens in public education is that we get distracted. I think they almost take advantage of these, um, these uh, kind of political wars that are happening in our country to keep us fighting over them while these private contracts are going to friends, right? Um, 
those issues are in themselves important and um, we need to fight those battles. But we have so many fronts upon which we're fighting that sometimes it's hard to get attention to other more to other equally as important fights that may not be garnering headlines. 1605 and the way we do instructional materials didn't get the kind of headlines that book bands did, right? It's all important. It's all equally important. And um, I'll say that politics is on fire. Public policymaking is on fire right now. And I think, unfortunately, it, it distracts us from um, important topics. Thank you. And thank you to you both, really. Thank you so much. Ma'am. Um, the... It occurs to me that for a long time, the strategy for improving education in Texas has been to minutely spell out what teachers should do in the classroom, the cookie cutter that you mentioned. I mean, and it occurs to me as a person who's been a teacher and lives with a bunch of teachers, that that is an effort to uh, create a system that does not require a high quality teacher. That what we're trying to do is create something that any monkey could come along and deliver and, but I wonder if there is conversation about the other approach to that, which to me would be, you know, certainly to increase the pay, but also to increase the uh, rigor and standards of teacher education in the sense of making it something, maybe kind of something more like what doctors do, a residency, requirements to get into uh, teaching that are more rigorous. You know, what's the conversation about that side of the equation? I'll say there's not enough conversation about it, which is unfortunate. We are distracted by these innovative ways. And by the way, it's not monkeys that I've heard should substitute for teachers. It's computers. And that's come to me from people who believe that we, we don't need as many teachers. And instead, we can have um, quality instruction through computers, right? And we don't need a teacher in the classroom. You and I both know that it, it's that relationship between teacher and student that facilitates that education, and it is essential to education. And so I'll say, in the state of Texas, right now, the policy debates are more about these fad diets than about, like, the nutritional pyramid. The nutritional pyramid is having a quality educator in the classroom. That's what we should be investing in, and Unfortunately, we are not having enough of those conversations. I would just add, as we're on the tail end of this, there's a few of y'all that mentioned your teachers. I want to thank all the teachers who do what they do for our students. <laughs> there's not a higher calling for our society than the teachers that are going to control and influence and be a part of our future generation. So I think you can't love on our teachers enough. You can't respect our teachers enough. And everything we can do to show them that respect are things we need to be doing. I am so sorry, but we have been told that we absolutely have to get out of this room. There is another panel coming right after us. Um, I want to thank everyone who came and listened and asked questions. Thank you so much. This is a real treat. A huge thank you again to the Texas Tribune for inviting us to participate in this incredible festival. Thank you to everyone who came out for the panel, and thank you all for listening. Until next time.